Welcome to Just Quietly, a podcast where Senator Amanda Stoker has a laugh with friends and colleagues, cuts through the bull, and explores the issues of the day. Let's get to the bottom of it all. Hi, I'm Amanda Stoker and welcome to Just Quietly, a podcast where we talk about some of the big ideas and big issues of our time, hopefully in a bit of a fun way with, this week, some of my friends. So we have here Senator James Patterson from Victoria and Senator Claire Chandler from Tasmania. And I set them a really important bit of homework in preparation that came out of our Um, attendance a little while ago at a Young Liberals convention where we ended up getting into a discussion about reading and books. And we had an opportunity to sort of describe some of the books that have been most influential upon us. And so I thought that it might be a great thing if we could have a bit of a chat about some of the books that have been most important in their political formation and what they might be able to do for somebody else who wants to understand what's going on both in our uh, polity and in the, the social and economic issues of our time. So thank you to you both for coming and spending a couple of minutes on the podcast today. Um, James, what have you picked and why? Amanda, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, I've picked Confessions of a Failed Finance Minister by Peter Walsh. Tell us about uh, this failure. Yes, well, it's a un- slightly unconventional choice because Peter Walsh was a Labor politician, but uh, he's a fascinating character and I think for anyone in politics today particularly interested in the economic sphere of politics, it's an absolute must-read. It's interesting just because it gives a really good interest- uh, interesting version of history of the 70s and 80s, uh, a, a pivotal time in our economic history, but also because Peter Walsh was a very unconventional character. He was actually quite a free marketeer. You'd almost say a classical liberal. He probably wouldn't use those words himself, but I think that's (laughs) a fair description. Uh, And he was way ahead of the curve on economics. And he was also, interestingly, ahead of the curve on culture in the Labor Party and was really identified quite early some of the problems Labor is now having with the, the social justice woke crowd. That is really interesting. I mean, the Labor Party's changed a lot then from a time when somebody with his beliefs could rise to the top. What do you think's going on within their party and what can we learn about their present dilemma from Peter Walsh's account? Well, there's a couple of things that are happening. Walsh has got a, a, an interesting personal background. He comes from a very poor uh, working-class family. He was on the land in Western Australia as a farmer, um, had a basically dirt-poor upbringing and was subsequently gained university degrees but is essentially a self-taught person. Uh, And in the Labor Party in the 70s and 80s, there was room for someone like that, a very traditional working-class background, uh, very humble background, uh, but a really intellectual person. Now it's become much more professionalised, it's become uh, much more unionised. He did not come from that mould. So he developed his own views about economics um, from his study and observation of the world. Uh, It made him a strong supporter of free trade. Uh, It made him deeply sceptical of government spending. He was notorious on the Expenditure Review Committee of Cabinet for killing stupid ideas from spending ministers. And so every finance minister... That's pretty valuable. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Every finance minister aspires to live up to that, despite the fact he called himself a failed finance minister. So is the reference to him being a failure um, words of modesty? Or was there, in fact, major failure in what he managed to achieve? I think it's an acknowledgement that uh, that the 
Balkan-Keating era wasn't a stunning success from an economic point of view, but someone like Walsh made it much less bad than it otherwise would have been. Uh, as finance minister in the late 80s, he presided over some of the largest cuts in government spending as a percentage of GDP in Australian government history. So imagine how bad things wouldn't have been had he not been there. But the other kind of uh, aspect of it is that I, I like to think of an analogy of finance ministers with the CIA, and that is that you never hear about their successes, but you do hear about their failures. Um, you'll never hear about all the stupid proposals that they stop in Cabinet or at ERC, but you will hear about the ones that slip through. So I think he's kind of acknowledging that tension. Uh, cabinet confidentiality can be cruel. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> he can't even, you know, uh, claim and, and own his successes. No, no. But I do want to read one p- uh, section in particular um, on uh, on that on that social ju- justice wokeness that I was referring to. That yeah. in in the eighties and nineties he was just way ahead of the curve on, and um, and it's actually talking about an institution that has subsequently evolved to be the Human Rights Commission, but it was at the time called the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. Uh, And uh, this is, and I'll quote this um, from his book directly. The most glaring example of a misplaced priority is the running costs budget of the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, which increased from 7.7 million in 1990-91 to 17.4 million in 1993-94, more than doubling in real terms in three years. At the same time, an extra half million people were excluded from jobs and the country moved further down the Argentinian road. Periok's social engineers who are an impediment to private sector employment, successfully doubled their claim on the national cake. This is not an outcome of which a Labor government should be proud. That's really interesting because the current Labor government is such an enthusiast for these sorts of um, human rights bodies Mm -hmm. and the, uh, I guess, permanent campaigning they do for the identity politics agenda that seems to have captured them, that they pour bucket loads of money down that shoot um, exactly every chance right. they get. Exactly right. And Peter Walsh was sceptical about the impact of superannuation on working people. He was deeply sceptical about environmentalism and the damage that would do to working class people. Uh, he is highly critical of the ABC and the times that it sought more funding from the government he was a part of and of journalists in the Canberra Press Gallery. So, uh, sadly, if there are any people left like him in the Labor Party today, we will never hear a peep from them about these things because... It's a very changed party. I want to send him a Liberal National Party membership form. Unfortunately, he's dead, <laughs> so you oh, can't. No, no. <laughs> well, that sounds like a ripper of a book. So, Confessions of a Failed Finance Minister from Peter Walsh. I confess I had to go onto A Books to get it because it is now out of print, mm. as I understand it. Um, but if you're looking for a copy, A Books has it and you'll get it for somewhere between uh, 20 and 40 bucks, depending on where you go. Um, highly recommended as. I think, an understanding into a very little um, covered part of our history, like uh, 80s and early 90s political history, isn't really considered especially glamorous and isn't well covered, particularly on the sort of centre-right side. So I agree. Other than Paul Kelly and John Howard, uh, there are very few people who've covered that uh, period in the real painstaking depth that it, that it deserves. Mm. Thank you, James. That's super. And um, a recommendation that I think uh, will be taken up by many. Claire... What have you got on your uh, favourite books list? Thank you for having me um, on the podcast today, Amanda. And I brought in, uh, we might call it an oldie but a goodie, um, and that's Lazarus Rising by John Howard. And there are a couple of different reasons I picked this book today. Um, In my political life, I've always been really interested in not only the um, the philosophy that a, a person holds, the ideology that drives their decisions, but more importantly, 
what those decisions look like um, when they are put into practice. And one of the things I love about um, John Howard's autobiography is that he, um, you know, describes in great detail not just what he believes in but also um, how what he believes in um, defined, you know, the, the political decisions that he made um, during his time as as Prime Minister and also in his political career before then. More broadly, I've always been really interested in political autobiographies and one of those reasons is I like hearing about what people did before politics and understanding what life experiences they bring to the table and um, Mr Howard certainly goes into great depth um, in his book of, uh, you know, his, his um, life at, as a child growing up in Sydney, going to university, going into the law um, and also the setbacks that he suffered along the way. I mean, in his book he says that he would have quite liked to be a barrister but he had some hearing difficulties and he realised quite early on that those hearing difficulties were going to make it very difficult for him um, to become a, a barrister and have to be able to, to listen um, at that sort of um, uh, at that level and be responsive in that way in a courtroom. So that's one of the reasons Mind why... You, I reckon you need it for politics as well. Well, <laughs> I, I can't help but wonder. Um, and obviously he details as well the different seats that he ran for and didn't get. And um, then once he finally was the member for Benelong, the uh, sort of... Um, crooked and, and, and wayward way that he ended up in the leadership. Um, you know, Lazarus with a triple bypass is, um, I think, the, the phrase that he uses that coins the <laughs> title of the book. And it's important for people to know that there are setbacks in politics and the road isn't always a straight one. Um, but in his book, I think Mr Howard really nicely sets out that if you believe in yourself and you have faith in your decisions, then eventually good things will come. One thing that was a hallmark of John Howard's leadership was that he was able to always link his policies to values and um, because those values so closely aligned with the normal Australian experience, um, it really resonated. Um, what do you think his experience, as accounted in the book, um, can teach us now about the role of values in political communication? That's a really good question. I think having... Knowing what those values are and having faith in them um, is, is really important. John um, often made some difficult decisions and had to bring the rest of the, the, the party room along with him. I'm sure you know the, the GST was a really good example of that where he had a very broad spectrum of the population that he needed to bring along for the ride with him. Um, the other uh, really powerful story that he speaks about in the book is... Um, is the Port Arthur massacre and mm. the response that was required for that. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess the takeaway is that you have to know what your values are and uh, and be decisive when the moment calls for it. I think after the Port Arthur massacre was a really good example of when um, Australia needed its leader to take decisive action on on a really tragic thing that had just occurred and, and Mr Howard did that. And, yes, there were um, tricky stakeholders that he had to... Um, negotiate with to, uh, you know, deal with the, the firearms legislation after that, but he stuck by his values. Claire, you, James, me, a bunch of others, are all pretty uh, early on in our political contribution. And one of the things I've been reflecting on is that there's no one really around to teach you how to do this. Um, you, you get elected or you get a, a special opportunity to be here 
and um, there's no manual. There's no real training other than perhaps your involvement in the party prior to this point. Um, and there's no one who tells you what's involved in being a good member of parliament. What is it, you know, how do you gain the skills that you need to one day be able to make the kind of contribution that someone like John Howard did? Um, is it instructive, this book, for people who want to understand the skill set and um, the, the framework they need to be able to make a contribution of his measure? Absolutely, and I think that the same can be said of a, a lot of um, political, political biographical and autobiographical works um, across the spectrum, whichever side um, that you're on, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've always liked reading them is not, not that you um, should necessarily use somebody else's uh, political story as your manual for how to be a good representative, but there are tips and tricks, um, so to speak, that you can that you can pull out of all of them. One of the things that John Howard did that I always um, meditate on and and like to to focus on in uh, my life as a, a parliamentarian is that he was, um, despite the hearing difficulties that he says that he had, a fantastic listener, and he knew. He could pick the moment when it was time to stop talking. That the, whoever he was speaking to, whether it was a, um, you know, a woman at the shops, you know, when he was doing a, a street corner conversation or um, out campaigning and door knocking um, in Benelong, he could pick the moment to stop and listen to people's concerns. Because sometimes um, in this job, I find you know, people expect politicians to have a point of view, and and they'll, they'll come to to speak with you expecting to hear that point of view but at the same time it is so important for us as politicians to be able to listen to people and be receptive to what to what they have to say and I, I've thought about the, that a lot particularly over the last few months particularly with the um the bushfires in Australia that so many people just want to be heard. Yeah and I mean one of the messages that um Mr Howard used to convey to colleagues all the time was that we're not commentators uh, we're here to to do mm. and um, that means listening and that means acting it does mean contributing ideas into the mix and advocating for them but it doesn't mean running commentary on um, you know the, the bits and pieces the, the little scraps along the way it's about things that are much more important to people's lives of course and I think that's why John Howard was such a good negotiator in his time I mean he had a um, he didn't always have uh, control of the Senate. There were crossbenchers up there that he had to deal with. But he made uh, it work. A- absolutely, <laughs> absolutely he did because he could listen. Yeah. Well, so what do you rate it out of ten? I would say solid eight and a half to nine. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's rating. A, it's a good and easy read. He doesn't overcomplicate things. It's a long read, sure. Yeah. Um, it, uh, you know, he had a very long um, political career. So it's a good I problem to have. It's, you know, <laughs> standard that he would have to get it in in, what, 800-odd pages. But, yeah, it, it's a great read. Yeah, beautiful. Look, thank you both very much. As we um, wrap it up, I wanted to revisit a couple of the topics that we um, touched on when we were chatting to the Young Liberals. Why is it so important for young people to be reading the great books of, of history, of political philosophy, and, and even of art and literature? Well, it's about being a well-rounded human being for a start, and I think that's a good and healthy thing for everyone to do. But particularly if you're a young person who's interested in politics, particularly if you want to put yourself uh, forward and to run for office one day and to help make decisions in the future of the country, or even if you just want to be part of that process 
uh, at a think tank or an industry association or as a political staffer. It can just be an engaged citizen. Indeed, indeed. Um, It's good to have a good understanding of what you believe and why you believe it and for that to be grounded in history and in evidence rather than just to be completely speculative. Uh, You don't want people uh, coming to these debates not fully formed and not well thought out because you won't have a really good um, framework for deciding uh, issues. In this job, we get hit day in, day out with really complex policy issues and without a, a kind of a true north or, or a set of values that's informed by your by wide reading, I don't know how you would pick which pathway you'd go down. Yeah, and I mean, if we don't understand history, uh, we don't have the opportunity to learn from the collective experience of those people who've gone before. We are literally reinventing the wheel. And um, it helps if we have developed from that process of reading and learning uh, some of the critical skills that might be required to, say examine whether or not climate hysteria is reasonable or examine whether the people on the other side are, you know, spinning a bit of bull or whether Mm. they have a legitimate criticism that needs action. So, Or or even just choosing between two imperfect paths, uh, which is quite often the case in this this life. So true. (laughs) Uh, Which of those imperfect paths are you going to choose? Well, your values are the only thing that are going to get you through those difficult decisions. Yeah. Values help you make the picks and then it's your problem solving and creativity that helps you polish up the least bad of those into something that is, um, let's hope most of the time, even good. <laughs> what do you reckon, Claire? Well, look, my response is similar to James's, um, but I'll I'll turn it on its head and look at it slightly differently. Um, I think it's important to read across the political spectrum so that you can know what the other side thinks and challenge Absolutely. your own views in that way. Um, and I, I know I referenced at the Young Liberals Conference, and I'll say it again now, one of the more interesting political um, autobiographies that I read, given that um, that's the one that I brought in here today, um, was Julia Gillard's My Story. And, you know, as a woman, uh, I guess I found it you know, interesting to hear about the experience that she had as um, Australia's first female Prime Minister, and that was uh, something that sparked my interest. But also to hear um, not only what she did uh, but why she did it in a policy sense and and reflect on that uh, that time in politics and hear her justifications for the decisions that she made and, and still, I guess, at the end of the book be able to say, that was nicely written and a, a good read but I disagree with most of what you say. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's really important that we don't just um, look at our own side of the coin, so to speak, yeah. that we consider what the others are saying. And when you do that, you help to build... Um, the kind of mutual understanding that stops society from becoming tribal. And there are so many forces, whether it's social media, whether it's identity politics, there's all these other forces that are trying to divide and tribalise our society. But reading from the work of people who think differently to you is one way that you can help to, at least for a moment, walk in their shoes and understand them even if you don't agree with them. Um, I'm going to let you guys go because you have enormously busy calendars, but you've got one more question to answer before you go. Um, And it is, this is an important political question, lots of uh, Prime Ministers and Prime Ministerial candidates have fallen down on this important stumbling block and so just, you know, just be grateful. I'm making sure that when (laughs) when you are called to higher things, this is not the first time you've heard the question. What is your favourite ACDC song? I have to confess, Amanda, I'm more of a 
electronic dance music guy than a classic rock guy. I never picked that. We won't explore that today. <laughs> really? We, we will not <laughs> explore that today. On another podcast. Another perhaps. podcast. We need to talk about That's that. That's the second edition. <laughs> but if I had to choose, and this, I hope this is not revealing in a bad way, I would have to say dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Okay. I'm going to take <laughs> that as um, not a statement of your political philosophy. <laughs> what about you, Claire? Um, well, I'm glad that you've asked me that question today and not um, some journalist in the press gallery at another point in time because <laughs> I sort of get mixed up between ACDC and Metallica and I did have to Google um, just to refresh my memory as to <laughs> which songs were sung by whom. And one's Australian, one's American. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, I guess I figured that out. Um, after the sort of um, year that we've had, I looked to the album Back in Black and I thought, you shook me all night long. That's one that I know. I've, you know, been at a few YL balls where that's come on and it <laughs> gets the dance floor going. So that'll be my pick. Hey, look, I would have thought to um, solid people of um, economic understanding, like you might have chosen Back in Black, mm. but um, I'm going to go... I at least went to the album. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. You get credit for that. I would put in as my choice uh, probably the ACDC cover of Baby Please Don't Go, oh, which one. I highly recommend. Okay. Um, but this is very important because if we are working for an understanding, um, quite Australians, blue-collar Australians, ACDC is very, very important. Sure. So thanks to you both. Um, I really appreciate uh, both the chat with two wonderful friends and um, your companionship in this crazy place and all the work that you do for your respective states. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, guys. Bye.